Hi, my name is Bob Sander, and I'm a professional storyteller. For over 30 years, my repertoire has included a group of personal narrative stories. Some of these are childhood memories, stories lived when, well, basically when I was a knucklehead in training, so to speak. Other stories come from my college student era, and still others date from my time as a beginner parent. And you know, by then I was kind of a professional knucklehead. While I do tell personal tales that are, well, either too risque or too this or too that to include here, you know, if you come to dinner some night, we'll eat and drink and I'll, I'll spill the beans on all those stories. But this collection, this bunch makes the cut. So I hope you enjoy them. And as for truthfulness, well, just know that these stories are absolutely 100% as true as I can make them. Enjoy. When I was 18, I received a letter in the mail from the Selective Service System. And they were letting me know that soon there would be a drawing, uh, the next drawing, for the draft to be inducted into the armed services and thence to go serve in the armed forces, probably in Vietnam, where people were being shipped off to at that time, for our war there in Vietnam. And I can remember sitting on the living room floor with my neighbors Steve and Keith and all of our parents, and we watched the television as some men reached into a huge bowl, I want to say. There were, it was like ping pong balls, and there were numbers on those, and they would start off with January the 1st, and then they'd reach in the bowl and pull out a ping pong ball, and if the number on that was very low, like 10 or 15, you would likely be then drafted to go be part of the service. But if you got a very high number, that means they would take enough people with low numbers before you and you wouldn't have to go. I don't remember if my number was high or low, but I remember both of my neighbors, Keith and Steve, both had low numbers. Uh, Keith went on to serve in the Navy, stationed out in San, Fran San Diego, I guess it was. And Steve, I believe, was sent to Vietnam. I might be wrong about this, but I think he was like a gunner in a helicopter that went out to rescue people who were in wounded or sad shape somewhere out there where they needed to be picked up. I did not go, and the reason is, um, first in my part of my family, to get to go to college. My parents had always wanted me to go to college. I was had always wanted to go. I kind of thought that's what would happen. Ever since probably fifth or sixth grade, that was the goal. And indeed, um, as long as you kept your grades up, as long as you had the money to go, and as long as a college would accept you, you could get a deferment and not have to go and fight. And that's what I did. I went to IU Bloomington, and one of my years there, we were looking for a place to live. We didn't have much money. And we ended up finding a farmhouse. The way it went was like this. We'd been riding around, five or six of us guys who didn't have much money. 
and we're searching for a place that might not cost very much, and we could not find anything in the city. And one of our numbers said, you remember seeing all those empty farmhouses that we passed on the way down here? Why don't we just go find one of those empty farmhouses and squat in it, just move into it? And we thought that was a pretty good idea, which shows about how smart we were at the time. And we drove in circles out around Bloomington, two miles out, three miles out, four miles out, maybe just circles following country roads. Five miles north of town, nothing. Nothing in all that driving. Then, about seven miles north of Bloomington, just off Highway 37, one mile south of what was then the very first year for the Oliver Winery, which, as it turns out, we helped them with product sampling quite a bit. There was a road called Sample Road, S-A-M-P-L-E. Later, maybe we were thinking it was named for the Sample family. And we went down that road, barely marked, could hardly see it at that time, just one of those little green county road signs. We went down that small two-lane road, and it was sort of uh, overgrown with trees that kind of made a canopy along the whole road. It's very pretty. Hardly a couple houses to be found along it. And the road went maybe a quarter of a mile, then it made a, a sharp turn to the left, I guess that was a turn to the right, and it paralleled the highway going north back towards Indianapolis. And finally, after a couple miles, it came back out onto 37. But right on that turn, when we first came down the road, there was a white, two-story, old, wood-frame farmhouse. You could tell it was abandoned. The paint on that house, like if you, have you ever taken a a knife and just kind of pulled it back across the top of a stick of butter. And the butter curls up and backwards, looks like a tongue. And the paint was peeling off that house, hanging there in big long shards like that. The bricks from the chimney, most of them were down on the ground in a pile. The windows, and the, some of the windows in that old farmhouse, two-story farmhouse, were as tall as I am. And we found out after we got into place, a lot of them up there on the second floor started at the floor and would go up a full six feet. And the glass in those windows was wavy and old. Now, most of the glass in those many, many window panes and those big tall windows was broken out. You know, you can figure out what happened. It's way out there in the country and Nobody had been in that house for years and years. A little kid would come by probably and think to themselves, wonder, could I break out that one window way up there on the top left? It's, it's one that's still left intact. They'd, they'd heave a rock up there and it'd whistle and smash into that window pane. So when you looked up at these window panes, many of them were broken and the rock would go through the pane and leave a hole in the middle of the pane but there were shards of glass that came in towards that hole. And they looked like long, clear, sharp, dagger-like teeth. The screen door was hanging on one hinge. The screens busted out. And there were weeds in the front of that house. It was as tall as I am, maybe taller. 
and we looked at all of that, we thought to ourselves, buddy, that just looks perfect. That's where we want to live. We walked across the street. There was a, a little low-slung, one-story house over there, kind of a normal-looking house. And we knocked on the door. And 68-year-old Noble Spriggs came to the door. I got to meet him later and, and uh, spent some time with him. He was just retired as a maintenance worker for the university. And he had big kind of puffy cheeks that were sort of reddish, like maybe a Santa Claus cheeks, you know. And he didn't have much hair on his head. And he had his thick glasses on, and he came to the, to the front door. Now, there were one, two, three, four, I think there were probably four or five of us standing there that day. And if you were alive then, you'll know what I refer to. And even if not, you might have seen this in movies or read about a group of somewhat disaffected young people at that time called hippies. Hippies. And we were not hippies. But we looked like them. We had long hair. Some, some of us had long hair practically down to our waist, maybe in a braid or a ponytail or something. And big beards, that was the, the thing. That was part of our uniform. We didn't know it was a uniform, but de facto it really was. Maybe a pair of bib overalls on with peace signs and patches all over them. So we looked a sight, and here was this fella, this country fella, Noble, Noble Spriggs. And we're on his front porch, and he comes to the door, and he says, boys, can I help you? We said, hey, how you doing? We're thinking about moving in this house over there across the street. We would be your new neighbors. Do you, do you know who owns that house? And I kind of saw him, there's sort of a sharp intake of breath there for just a second. He says, boys, uh, no, no, you don't want to live in that house over there, boys. No, no, no. There's been nobody living in that house for maybe 30, 35 years. The place is uh, over 100 years old. It has uh, no heat system, to my knowledge. Uh, it may not have running water. It never had a bathroom. Uh, we said, well, we don't, we don't care about any of that. We'll just fix that all up. We'll take care of that. He said, well, uh, I do not own that place, but I know who does. And he gave us a phone number of the man who owned that house. And we walked away that day. Now, uh, we called that fellow up on the telephone. And I, I have it. I think that it's a true remark. Mark Twain is said to have uttered once, which is fishing is a process with a sucker on one end of the line and a fish on the other end. Well, we called this guy up, and after telling him what we wanted, I'm pretty sure he knew what he had on the other end of the line. Because we said to him that we wanted to live in his house. And his response was, boys, you don't want to live in that house. It has no heating system. Don't think it has running water anymore. It does, and he told us everything that Noble had just said to us. We said, well, we don't care about any of that. We'll fix the whole thing up. You know, we'll just make it right as rain. He looked, you know, he didn't look at us, but he said on the phone, boys, I don't want to put a dime in that house. 
There's about 120 acres of land out there, pasture and some bottom land and some, there's a big like a valley there with a creek running through it. And I keep several head of cattle out there fattening them up. That's not all. I also have an arrangement with the university. There's a stables not too far away where they offer horseback riding classes. I think they call that learning to be an equestrian. I have 35 of their horses, what are being rested, out there on that property. And they pay me for that. So I'm not going to put a dime in that house. You can't live in the thing. But the land is all I'm interested in for my cattle and the money I make from those horses. We said, now hold on, you don't understand what we're saying. We are offering to fix up your house for you, and we will pay for everything it costs to do that. There was, there was a moment of quiet and silence. He says, let me get this straight. You're going to fix up my house for me. You're going to pay for it. What's the catch? We said, there's no catch. We just, we want to live there for the next three, four years while we're going to school and you not charge us any rent. We'll just watch over the place. He was quiet again for a minute. And then he said, he says, uh, well, boys, I'll tell you what, if you do what you say you're going to do, I could let you live there for the first whole year rent free. But after that, I would want to charge you. Now we got a little cautious. I said, how much would you want to charge us? And he thought about it, and he said, would $40 a month be too much to ask? Well, I divided that by five and got nine because I, I was an English major. I said, no, that's just, that's perfect. That's fine. No problem. Well, he came out, and we met him out there, you know, the next weekend. And uh, we'd not seen any of those horses he was talking about. Um, but when he pulled in the drive in his truck to meet us, horses came in from all over the field and gathered there near the gate. Of course, he's the one that brought hay and feed and apples and carrots and such. And we signed the contract, and he was kind of getting ready to go when he looked at us boys, you know, we, we kind of looked a sight. And he said, boys, you know, I got this arrangement with the university to rest these horses here. So you understand, don't you? You cannot be riding those horses, all right? And we kind of looked at him and grinned a little bit and said, yeah, okay, we won't ride them. I don't think he was all the way back out to Highway 37 before we jumped over the fence and tried to ride those horses. Now, we didn't have saddles, we didn't have reins, bridle, you know, and such. We had nothing. We just grabbed the mane of the horse's hair and leaped and jumped up onto their backs. And in short order, we found out essentially there were three kinds of horse there on that farm. The first kind, you would jump on top the back of them, hold onto the mane, give them a swift kick in the flanks, you know, with your heels and say, yeah! And that horse, if you didn't know better, you would think that particular kind of horse was dead, but it had just forgotten to fall over. They'd just be just stiffen up, hardly even breathe. The second kind of horse, 
as soon as your bottom touched the back of the horse's back, you were floating in air. You were flying through air. You were maybe doing a somersault or two because they would buck you off in an instant. And the third kind of horse was the kind that we like to find. And you would jump on their back and try to remember, oh yeah, it was this one. Remember that for next time. Because a little, a little kick to the flanks and go, yeah. And they would take off galloping 20, 30 miles an hour from zero in just seconds. You were flying across the field. And it was great. It was wonderful. You're just hanging on for dear life because there's no way to direct them where to go. But they knew where they wanted to go. And they did go there. And it was to the nearest tree with a low-hanging branch. And you don't think that horses smile. I mean, I guess somebody who's around them a lot knows when a horse is happy. But you don't. You don't expect to see a smile on a horse's face. But I swear, and it happened more than once, as that horse that I was on approached a tree with a low-hanging branch, I would kind of lean down and look over, and you could see what, I swear, looked like a little smile coming across that horse's lips. And then that horse would duck its head down at the last minute, and that low-hanging branch would whack, catch you in the chest and just launch you backwards over the back of that horse's rear end. And pow, hit the ground. Well, we went to move in that house, and those weeds and grass out in the front were, oh, you know, maybe six, seven feet tall. So there was no getting a mower out there. You had to first take a scythe out there and cut all that down before you could even think about getting a mower. Of course, when we got the scythe out, sometimes clang, we would hit something metal, and you'd pull back the weeds and look, and we found uh, an engine block, uh, barbed wire, lots and lots of cans, wheels, a washing machine all rusted and beat up and shot with guns and every kind of thing you can imagine. We took a couple of truckloads of all the stuff we pulled out of that yard onto the back of our, our pickups and took them out to the Monroe County landfill. And by the time we finally got all that taken out of there, you could then get a mower and start to cut. It's a big yard, probably a 120-foot fir tree out beside the place. A lot of old broken down sheds. There was a barn which was also pretty old and kind of broken down. And we worked on the idea of uh, getting all those windows repaired. My dad was pretty good at glazing. You know, he had done painting and working on houses including putting new windows in places that needed it back in the 1930s. So he came down and helped and I think I can't remember who all's father did what, but one of them was good at uh, masonry work and tuck pointing and all that, got the chimney put to rights. We started looking around to figure out what we're going to do for a bathroom. Now, one of our number, he was actually the one who originally had said to us, why don't we all just sleep in my van, which that was an idea we rejected pretty quickly. He now came forward with a new idea about the bathroom. His idea was this. He said, why don't we all just go out in the woods and squat down? Well, I'm thinking, you know, I don't want to go out in the woods and squat down. There could be ticks and chiggers and poison ivy and snakes, and you don't know what's going to jump up at you while you're hanging your bare bottom down over the, the floor of the woods. So we looked through the house 
and saw there was a kind of a glass, there was a pantry space. We thought, you know, this little corner of the house, we could maybe turn that into a bathroom. So we went out to the country and uh, surrounding Bloomington and clear all, all the way over to Nashville, where there were several, well, at that time we called them junk stores. But today, I think they'd probably advertise themselves as antique stores. And we went in there and got used uh, sinks and shower fixtures and such and came back. And we concreted up a stall for the shower. The floor of that shower stall was so rough of the concrete finish that it would, it would literally, you know, make the bottom of your feet bleed if you stayed in there too long when you're taking your shower. But we got a toilet and a sink and a shower. And we had looked around when we first got in there and noticed that there in the kitchen, great big farmhouse kitchen, there was a, a one-piece white porcelain sink with a drain board about three feet long on one side and then the huge basin for the sink on the other. And next to it, was a pitcher pump, the kind, you know, the kind I'm talking about where you take your hands and kind of the up and down motion with the lever and up comes the water through the pitcher pump. And we tried that, but nothing came up. It was just empty and loose. But we saw there was also what looked to be regular fixtures in that sink. And sure enough, there was a, a, a underground pump, submersible pump, which we got going again. So there was running water. But it didn't, we couldn't figure out what had they ever done for a drain because there didn't seem to be any hookups for a drain. We, so we weren't quite sure what, what had ever happened before. Now, as it turns out, one of our roommates had wandered out onto an old back deck that led to a smokehouse. Smokehouse wasn't being used anymore and neither was the deck. The deck was rather treacherous to walk across. But in the very middle of that deck, there was a round ring, about two and a half, three feet across, made of concrete. And in the center of that round ring of concrete, there was a little steel plate, probably barely as big around as a man's head. And one roommate had prized up that little steel plate, stuck his head down into the hole, and, and literally, stuck is the right word, because he was stuck. And we could hear him kind of go, Hey, get me in here. I'm stuck in here. Get me in here. And we walked out there. We said, What are you doing? I'm stuck in here. You're stuck? Stuck. So we got some of the axle grease from out of a Folgers coffee can I kept in the back of my 1967 blue and white Ford pickup truck, F-150, held together by rust. And we greased him up pretty good around his neck and his ears, and then we were able to pull him free from that from that hole there in the deck. First thing he says was, put your head in there. I'm not putting my head in there. You were just stuck in there. I'm, why would I put my head in there? No, you got to see what's in there. Well, I'm not putting my head in there. And we got a long stick and duct taped a mirror onto one end of it and hung it down in that hole and shone a light down there so we could see as it reflected off the mirror. And it showed that there was a, like an underground chamber made of concrete, all the walls, the floor, and the ceiling, and it was just huge and perfectly empty. So we thought, well, this is the perfect solution to our dilemma about drains. And we had just, you know, got that whole thing going, thinking about that. 
when Noble walks over. Now we had connected the sink in our new bathroom and the toilet and the shower and the drain lines went over to this big underground chamber that we had busted through one side of it. And uh, he said, boys, what are you doing here today? We said, well, Noble, look at this. We built a bathroom in this place. It, I mean, never had one, but now it does. And, and we even figured out what to do for the drain. Check this out. And he came out and he saw what we had done. And he said, boys, 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 Lord, what have you done? We said, well, we, we ran these drain lines. He said, yes, you ran your drain lines and you hooked them right into your cistern. Now, do you know what a cistern is? I mean, you probably do, but I, I really didn't at that time. To me, it sounded like a word from church. I'd heard, you know, the, the, the brethren talked about, so I thought maybe cistern was the feminine form. And he said, no, no, boys, Lord, no. It's, he said, look up there. And we noticed he was pointing up toward the roof where there were a series of the, the gutters for when it rained and how they all seemed to tie over into one big downspout. And it came down and went underneath that deck. And he said, now it's been dry down here. We've almost, I think you could call this a drought we've been having. So this tank you're hooked into now, it, it doesn't have any water in it. But this would have collected all that rainwater. And then he looked at us and said, reckon what you're going to be pumping up with that pitcher pump there in the kitchen after you use this for a while with your toilet and your sink and your shower all draining into here. We thought, oh, we ha oh my God, we had no idea. This is terrible. He said, terrible is right. Boys, what you should have done, you should have put in a little money and got yourself a septic system dug out here, you know, a septic tank and a finger system to go with it. And that would have lasted you... Uh, Oh, it would have lasted maybe long after you'd be gone, 20 years or more, maybe more, maybe a lot more. We said, well, what about this arrangement that we've got? Oh, this is just going to fill up and stink. Really? How long would that be? Well, how often do you go? We looked at one another. We said, well, we'll try not hardly, hardly to go at all out here. We'll just hold it till we get to the university. So, so what do you think? He got kind of a, he'd get a little twinkle in his eye when he was tickled about something, you know, or having you on. He said, don't know, could last a couple years. Maybe only last a couple months. Hard to say. Then he kind of walked away that day whistling a funny little tune. Seemed like we'd made him kind of happy. Well, I can, if you remind me later, which that'll be hard to do, won't it, on a podcast, but if I think of it later... I'll tell you what happened to the unique sanitation system we had installed there. Meanwhile, we're trying to figure out what do we do about heat. Well, they were correct about one thing. There was no heat that had ever been installed in that house. And uh, we did get an old fuel oil furnace that one of our fathers was thrown away up in Indianapolis. And we got the whole great huge thing and brought it down, somehow got it through the front door, into a hallway. There was no basement. There was no room to put it in. So we just put it in the hallway. And the 
pipes, the ductwork, just kind of had to go through the air and punch through the ceiling into this room and that room and into the kitchen. And it was a little bit like somebody had dropped a great huge wad of metal spaghetti there in the hallway. And it just snaked all over the house. Turns out that that fuel oil heating system would suck down 200 gallons of fuel oil like like it was some kind of delicious drink. It would just suck that down like there was no tomorrow. And the heat that came out of those vents to each room was so small, so pitiful, so tiny, that it hardly did any job at all except suck all of our money away. Now, so we actually, we needed more heat. We needed some kind of supplemental heat. Well, all of us noticed in our rooms, there were pie plates stuck on the walls at about head height. I thought, my mother keeps pie plates at home, but she keeps them down underneath the counter unless she wants to make a pie. But these pie plates were up on the side of the wall in every bedroom in the kitchen, and they had little country scenes painted on the bottom of them. I thought, well, that's odd, too, because my mother doesn't paint on the bottom of her pie plates. And I went over into one in the room that I had claimed, and I pulled it off the wall, and when I did, it finally came loose, and a great huge lump of soot fell out of what was a covered-up uh, outlet for a fire from a fire uh, from a stove to go into the chimney. And every place in the house had something a little bit like that. Or if it didn't, then you'd have to go through a window, you know, with a stovepipe. Well, we went out into the country looking for wood stoves. But this was in 1971 or two, and the Arab oil embargo had not happened yet, which meant that pretty much fuel was still cheap. Nobody wanted a wood stove. So when we found wood stoves at the junk stores, which today are called antique stores, they had been thrown away a long time ago, usually for some pretty good reasons. And they were made of cast iron, they were buckeyes and hot blast and mighty oak and all these old, old wood stoves. Some of them probably, you know, old, as old as the house. And we each got one, and uh, let me tell you, it was no easy task to cart those things up to the second story and get it into the, through the door into my bedroom. And I hooked the thing up, and I, I, I say I hooked it up. I really had no idea what I was doing. I'd never had any experience with anything like this. Uh, neither had my mom and dad. At home, I just turned the dial on the Honeywell, you know, the thermostat on the wall, and went and stood over the heating register, and it felt pretty good. But here I've got this wood stove, and I'm thinking, well, what do you know? How, what do you do? And I'm thinking, well, you know, it's got to be some way. I guess the smoke comes out here, and then the hole in the wall sucks it up and out the house. So we started a little practice fire, and of course, immediately the room just filled with smoke. Noble comes over and says, boys, what are you doing? Are you going to catch the house on fire or what? We said, well, we're trying to get this wood stove going. Boys, you need to at least get you some stove pipe, for God's sakes. You know, it comes out here, that's that hole in the back, that's where the pipe goes on, and it goes up to that, that flue there in the wall. All right, we, we can do that. Where do we get it? Farm Bureau Co-op. They've got it. That's where you go. It's out on West 2nd Street. So off to Farm Bureau Co-op we go. Come back with a couple lengths of, you know, that tinned or, or it certainly was not stainless steel. The stovepipe and a pair of 
tin snips to cut the thing to fit. And we got it all hooked up, and we started another practice fire. Sure enough, the room fills up with smoke once again. Noble's back over, you know, we kind of go and fetch him. Boys, for God's sakes, what are you doing now? Well, Noble, we, we got the pipes all hooked up and all, but it's still just smoke everywhere. He says, well, you see, look here, you're not sealed up at the joints. We said, well, how, how do we seal up? Boys, you need to get yourself some asbestos tape. Well, at the word asbestos, a little alarm went off of my head. I said, well, what is, what is that? Noble says, well, it looks like a, 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 about a four-inch wide roll of, uh, it looks like duct tape, but it's much thicker. It's kind of like cardboard. And you just pull out what you need, and you wet it in water. Then you wrap it around the joint, because that's where all the smoke's coming out. And this will seal it up, and it's fireproof. I said, Noble, isn't it, isn't it true that th there's been some trouble with asbestos? Like health effects? No, 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 he said. Look at me. I'm 68 years old and I've been messing around with uh, asbestos tape and the like for all my life. I'm still here, aren't I? Well, we couldn't deny that he was still there. And I don't know that that's a sterling recommendation to use asbestos tape. But it was off to the Farm Bureau Co-op once again to get ourselves some asbestos tape. Came back and I'm not proud of having done this, but, you know, we used it. And it did work like a charm, and the next time we had a fire, no smoke leaked out of any of those joints. Now, I did make a discovery about my particular stove, which was the reason why my stove had been thrown away at one point was because the dampers that control the flow of air in there, and hence the rate of burn, could not be adjusted. They were set for mostly wide open. So I was encouraged when I started the fire because it started right away. And it got hotter and hotter and hotter. And pretty soon it was almost, seemed to be glowing red down there in the bed where the main fire was. And it was just amazing. Uh, but, you know, if you live with that for a while, you realize you cannot be in that room with the door closed and the fire going for long before you have to take off all of your clothes, lie on top of your covers, and just sweat and sweat and sweat. I'd, I'd been to sleep many a night like that. Of course, burning that quickly burns out all the wood and the fire within uh, half an hour to 45 minutes. But 45 minutes of being in that kind of heat will drug you to sleep, which it did. And I would wake up and I was trapped in my bed because there was no insulation anywhere in that house and the cold would come snaking through the walls, and all that sweat that I had sweat out now froze solid. And I was in a stupor while the freezing action was happening, and when I'd wake up, I'd try to move, and it's like, I'm trapped. I'm locked down to the bed. It was like somebody had put a, a clear breastplate over the top of me and froze it down onto the bed, and I'd have to use some mus muscles to sit up and there were occasions when I could literally lift the clear image of my chest off of me and look through it. And if you believe that, I really am a storyteller. But it got really cold in our bedrooms there. And as it turns out, electric blankets were the thing that mostly got us through some of those cold, frigid nights. You know, um, we loved living there. There were 
beautiful ravines out there where the pasture kind of sloped down. And in those ravines, for maybe a quarter of a mile, there were blackberry bushes that grew oh, 12, 15 feet tall. And we could skirt down along the edge of those bushes as we walked that field when the berries were ripe. And you could pick so many berries, you could fill a bucket in no time at all. And your lips and your tongue would be stained purple by the time you got back close to the house. Purple fingers, purple everything. And we had the knowledge that, that Rick's girlfriend, soon to be his wife, Carol, would make us up a great huge batch of blackberry jam. Mm, it was so good. Now, that little ravine, often after a rain event, would flow with some water. And it, it approached what was a horseshoe-shaped drop-off in the field. Down there in southern Indiana, there's lots of karst, you know, limestone that's been eaten up by the, the low acid in the water that falls from rain. So there's lots of caves and places where the ground's all... Um, eroded away. And here was this horseshoe-shaped falls when the water would be coming. And it had trickled down probably 20, 25 feet down. And then that little base of that waterfall would go down and join a small creek way, way down at the bottom of the ravines. And in the bottom of those ravines were sycamore trees and, and walnut trees uh, and some of those sycamores, I'd take three or four people holding hands to go around the base of those trees. They were so tall with that beautiful white bark. So we liked hiking all around there. You could hike for miles along that creek bed. And we'd run out there and we'd jump on those horses and horseback ride. I remember one night, it was fall, and it was chilly, but you know, you could you could stand it. It wasn't it wasn't terrible. There wasn't a wind. And the tall grasses out in the pasture had mostly fallen over. And it was a brisk, moonlit night. And we walked out there in that tall grass. And all of us, maybe five of us, uh, probably with girlfriends at that time, lay down with our heads together, facing out like a star shape, you know. And we're looking up at the night sky. We're far out enough from Bloomington and certainly far enough away from Martinsville or Indianapolis that you could still see so, so many stars in the sky. I can remember laying there, concentrating, looking up. Every once in a while, there'd be a blaze of color that went across the sky as a shooting star hit the atmosphere, burnt up. And then I remember something else. I got this feeling, and I knew we weren't alone. Even as we lay there on the ground, I could feel that there was a presence there. And I looked around. My eyes had to kind of readjust from looking up at the sky to the darkness around me. And indeed, there were many, many shapes of those horses that had come silently through the field at night. And they stood in a wider circle around us, gazing down at us. They must have been wondering, what in the world were we doing there? There was a lot to enjoy about living there, that's for sure. This was in an era when a man by the name of John Shuttleworth started publishing a magazine. I think it might still be around today. It was called The Mother Earth News. 
It was a sort of back-to-the-land movement, which was popular among a certain section of folks at that time, young folks for sure, wanting to learn about self-sufficiency and gardening and farming even. All things country, nothing that I'd ever grown up with. I liked reading that magazine and his mm, kind of contrarian take on everything to do with rural life. And I got interested enough in that that I thought, let's have us, let's have us a big garden. And I went to my roommates and said, boys, let's have us a big garden. We went over and talked to Noble. He said, boys, there was a big old garden right out behind that house for years and years. Quite productive it was. But it hadn't been a garden in a long time. So you're going to go out there to garden. You're going to need to, to get the soil loose and friable so you can plant in it. So we said, all right. We went straight out behind the house and we started digging with hand tools and shovels and spades. And, oh, Lord, it just turned your hand into a mass of blisters in no time at all. He wandered over one day and kind of watched us working at that. It was pitiful to see. He said, boys, you got the wrong tools. I saw it right away. You did? Absolutely. Why didn't you say so? Well, experience is the best teacher. Now, what you want is not a, a shovel or a spade. What you want is a rototiller, which that didn't mean anything to me growing up in Indianapolis. He said, yes, it's a mechanized device that will just dig right into that ground. Well, okay, we don't want to buy one. No, you don't want to buy one. You want to rent it. Great, we'll rent it. Where do we get it? Farm Bureau Co-op. Well, we went out there to the Farm Bureau Co-op and we rented our rototiller, brought it back, fired it up, it was gas-powered, and started to use the thing. Now, as it turns out, the thing bounced on the ground it's, it's times, the diggers that churn up the ground, it just bounced that 90 or 100 pound machine up and down and off the ground. I'm telling you, I think it took skin off the inside of the palms of our hands in about 18 seconds. Noble had come over and he was watching us for a while as one by one, we all took a try at it. And then, you know, we had bandages and band, bandanas and the like tied on our hands and we came over and we said, look at this, this, this doesn't work. He said, boys, you got the wrong kind of rototiller. I saw it right away. We said, but, but you, he said, yes, experience is the best teacher. And boys, you got the kind of rototiller that has the tines in the front. Now that's okay if what you've got is a garden, what's been a garden for a long time. But I'm telling you, what you want is the kind for a place like this that has not had a garden in a long while. You want the kind with the tines in the back. So we went back out to Farm Bureau Co-op, and sure enough, they had a rototiller with the tines in the back. It's bigger, was heavier, but buddy, did it work. We brought that thing back, and we started it up, and it just dug down into the soil, maybe a foot and a half, two feet deep. It was an amazing thing. It just took this stuff that had been weeds and knots of uh, roots of weeds all tied together and turned it into the most beautiful, friable, lovely garden soil that you'd ever want to find. Now, I had seen in the pictures of, of uh, the Mother Earth News 
pictures of how easy these things were to work. They even show a little girl, you know, about uh, six years old, standing beside one of these things, just kind of holding one hand on it. And she was off to the side of it. And here it was, chewing through an asphalt parking lot and turning it into garden soil. That's kind of an exaggeration. But, oh, it was so easy to use. We all wanted to do it. It was fun to do. And we kind of got carried away. And we made a garden plot that was uh, 220 by 220 feet. That's a that's an acre. And so that was probably too big for novice gardeners. But uh, that's what we did. And then we, we made our second mistake, which was we planted it all in corn, one crop. And then we made our third mistake, which was we planted the corn all at one time, which meant that at a certain point during the season, we harvested the corn and it was all ready at the same time. And I can well remember driving up to my mother's house in Beech Grove, where I grew up, outside of Indianapolis, with sideboards on the pickup truck, filled to the top, level full with sweet corn. My mother says, for God's sake, what are you going to do with all that? And I said, well, I don't know. What are we going to do with all this? And she introduced me to the big black canning kettle and that sharp knife she had and how you kind of put that corn down in there once you've husked it and maybe parboiled it a little, shocked it with the hot water, and then you cut all that corn off and you bag it all up and put it in the freezer. And, well, that's been over 50 years ago now. But, uh, so, do you like corn? Because, I mean, if you do, we still have some bags of that corn. I think it's still eating pretty good. You let me know, I'll get some to you. Anyway, we went through that year kind of doing this and that to try to recapture this back to the land movement. Comes around into the, the next, I guess it was late winter. And um, I said to my roommates, boys, wouldn't you like to wake up in the morning and go down to the kitchen and open up the fridge and pull out some fresh laid eggs from home-raised chickens? I'm talking about eggs that when you crack them open, it takes some effort to crack those shells. And when they hit the pan, they don't just, the, the yolk just doesn't break and run all over the place. It's a deep, dark orange from chickens that have been eating grass and walking around on God's green earth. And it stands there and looks up at you and kind of says, I dare you to try to break me. Wouldn't you like to get up and have those kind of eggs for breakfast? rather than these little pale, insipid things that are barely even yellow from chickens that have been stuffed, maybe 10, 15 of them, in a one-by-one-by-one wire cage, stacked one on top the other, beaks sawn off because they're in there going crazy, trying to peck each other to death, legs that never touch the ground, feet that never touch the ground, don't even have the faintest idea about what the word rooster even means. Aren't you tired of eating eggs like that? Don't you want some of these fresh ones like what I'm talking about? They said, no, we don't want any eggs like that. We don't care what kind of eggs we eat. The ones from the store are just fine. I said, that's fine for you. But when I start getting eggs from my chickens, from my hens, don't come around here wanting some of the product that you didn't help with. Perfect, they said. That suits us fine. I went across the street. I said, Noble, where can I get myself some chickens? He said, well, I've got chickens. I said, great, I'd, I'd like some layers. He said, well, I don't have any for sale right now, but I can tell you who does. 
Now, if you take Sample Road all the way up to where it turns back and goes out to the highway, there's a graveyard on the right, or maybe it's the left. Anyway, up there close by the graveyard, you'll see a woman with a red barn, and she will sell you chickens. Really? Absolutely. Well, I fixed up one of those old sheds out there on the property, got roost boxes that I'd salvaged from out of an old broken-down farmhouse I'd found, and I made some some uh, poles for them to get on, to roost on, and they had these nesting boxes, and and uh, I thought I'd go see that lady now. And I went up the road, it's about a mile away. Upon reflection, it occurs to me that she saw me coming about maybe a mile away, because she sold me hens that were so old. I mean, I don't think the word egg was even part of their vocabulary anymore. They hadn't passed an egg for years. I did not know this. She sold me half a dozen of those hens. I brought them home, and I was going out to the Farm Bureau Co-op probably maybe once a week because they were just eating their way through 30-pound bags of feed in no time, but it was not eggs coming out the other end. There was a lot coming out the other end, but none of it was eggs. I walked across the street. I said to Noble, said, uh, Noble, uh, my hens aren't giving me any eggs. He said, are you feeding them? I said, sure, they eat like there's no tomorrow. He said, well, tell you the truth, it probably wouldn't matter how much you fed them because I, I noticed that your hens are too old. They won't, they're not laying anymore. They're just that old. I said, really? He said, yeah, I saw it right away. Well, I said, what, what do I do with a hen like that? I mean, I don't know what to do. He said, stew them. What? what, what? Stew, stew them? Like... He said, yeah, stew them. They're not good for anything else. You know, I'd been raised in a suburb of Indianapolis, and nobody had livestock of any sort. And I didn't know how to go about that, you know. I didn't know whether to wring their necks or chop their heads off. And even if I knew how, I, I didn't have the heart to do it. I said, Noble, if I just kept those chickens, how, how long does a chicken just live out for its life? What's the lifespan? And, you know, he kind of seemed to get that funny little gleam back in his eye again. He looks over at me after a minute, and then he kind of looks down. And I could see he had a little smile on his face. He said, I've known chickens to live upwards of 35 years, which that was a lie. And then he kind of walked away that day. Um, but, you know, I still wanted to get eggs. So I found myself over on his front porch another day. I said, no, but I still want I still want eggs. I want to get chickens. Where do I get chickens that'll actually lay me an egg? Farm Bureau Co-op. Well, the Farm Bureau Co-op back at that time was way out there on West 2nd Street. Um, and it was an old, old building with big hand-hewn timbers. And you walked in and the wide, hugely wide plank wooden floors, all the varnish that maybe had ever been there at all once upon a time was completely gone. And the wood of these big plank, thick, wide plank boards was starting to kind of wear down in places. It looked like you're walking on the top of a loaf of bread right out of the oven. It even smelled like that because of all the grain that was part of the feed mixtures for all the animals. And there were cobwebs that went from the open rafters uh, up there in the ceiling all the way down practically to the ground. Cobwebs that probably had not been removed for a generation. And 
every time I walked in there, it had this smell about it, and you felt like you're walking across the top of the loaf of bread, and here'd be all these farmers in there, and they'd be sitting over on their big bench, kind of a liar's bench, you know, trading stories, and they were all waiting on their feed orders to be filled, and then somebody'd call them over there, and they'd pay up and go outside and get loaded, and off they went, but they'd be standing there, and I walked in there. I remember this pretty clearly because nobody else looked like me, you know, with the long hair and the beard and kind of the hippie outfit on. And they all had bib overalls and, and uh, you know, the farm hats on with Bill or Brim. And uh, so, you know, it'd get quiet. I'd walk in and kind of get quiet. I knew it was, I could feel their eyes sort of boring a hole in the back of my head as I was up there at the, at the order desk. One day I was in there, and I could feel the big plank boards kind of give and move. And I, I looked with just a little glance, and out of my peripheral vision, I could see that the, the hugest, biggest of them all, those, all those farmers, was making his way across the floor, and the board was literally giving a little bit under his weight. And I felt that movement stop right behind me. And I heard this big voice kind of boom out and said, Hey, hippie, what are you doing in here? And I turned and looked at him. You know, he's about a foot taller than me. I said, well, I'm getting, uh, I'm getting feed for my chickens, some laying mash. You got chickens? I said, yeah, I got chickens. And I see him turn. And uh, in the distance, all of his buddies are looking at him. He says, he says he's got chickens turns back around, looks at me and says, do you really have chickens? I said, well, yeah. He said, hmm, shoot, son, we thought maybe you were eating it all your own self. I said, well, no, no. He says, if you really have chickens, what kind do you own? I said, well, I've got some speckled Sussex, some uh, white rocks, I got a couple little banties. Boy, they're small, but they're feisty and fun to watch. Beautiful feathers on those things. And um, let's see. I got a couple oriconas. You know those South American birds that lay the colored eggs? The what? Yeah, South American birds. You never heard of them? No. Hold Come over here. And he kind of took me by the, by the shoulder and pulled me back over to the bench where I sat down and started explaining oriconas, which was kind of a new thing at the time, to all these other farmers, and I'll be darned. You know, after a little while, I guess that was the first time that they could see past my long hair, and that I could talk to them just like a normal person, and that was the first time that I could see past their red necks, so to speak, and we just saw each other for people who had something in common at that point. Well, ever after that, you know, whenever I'd walk in over there, it was always, hippie, come over here. And I'd have to go over and we'd sit and talk. And I, I enjoyed talking to those guys. I don't know that we had a whole lot in common, but we had enough. We had enough. And I got to know some of them. And for years after that, you know, maybe I'd stop out there uh, down in Bloomington, even after I graduated. If I was visiting, I'd go look in there to see, is there somebody still here that I know? And, of course, a lot of them had to leave farming as uh, farming became harder and harder to do um, as far as 
a monetary return that could support a family. A lot of factors at work there. Some of them took heart attacks, you know, and died maybe earlier than they would have. But on that day, you know, I got my land mesh and came back and was feeding it to my 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 chickens. The thing was, I'd gotten young chickens, and Noble had explained this to me. He says, you get started in the spring, which I did, and he said, you got to get yourself pullets. I said, a pullet, a pullet, what is a pullet? He said, well, it's not a chick. They're raised up a little more than a chick would be, and you can still you can buy those there, and uh, they cost a little more, but uh, they're not laying yet, but they're, they're going to start laying pretty soon. You know, just little eggs, practice eggs, you know, little tiny things. And so, uh, you know, I had pullets. And I said, well, then, so what do we do? You know, how long does it take? Well, it takes a while. The photo period is kind of a trigger for them, and then they'll start laying. So I got the pullets, maybe in like mid-spring, and then as summer started to come on, you know, I'm out there every day checking in the nest boxes. Looking, I would even get, I would get so anxious. There'd be a chicken in a nest box and I'd lift up their back end, you know, kind of, excuse me. And I'd look underneath to see, was there an egg yet or not? I didn't get eggs. I mean, a couple months went by past the date when you could expect to get them. No eggs. And I remember going over to Nobles one day and I said, Noble, um, my chickens are old enough to be laying now, right? Oh, yeah, they're plenty old enough. They should be laying just fine. What about you? What about your chickens? Well, he took me out in his backyard. He had a little fallen down kind of a shed out there where he had a, a, a small Jersey cow. And next to it was like a 1951, no wheels or tires on it, truck, like a Chevy truck. And the doors were open or gone, and the like horsehair stuffing inside the seat on the driver's side was all ripped up. And in that seat were about 15 eggs where the hens would just come in that open old truck and lay their eggs. Feed scattered on the floor. I said, Noble, I bought a self-dispensing water with a heating unit for it. And, and nice nest boxes and I get nothing. And look at your arrangement and you got all these eggs. What am I doing wrong? He said, I don't think you're doing anything wrong. It's just something's... He said, you know what? Your chickens could have lice. Lice? I said, lice? Yeah. Chickens get lice? Well, they can. And if they do, they won't lay any eggs. Oh, good Lord. How do I find out if they've got lice or not? He said... You got to go look around the vent. The vent? Vent? Now, to me, you know, I'm thinking fish have gills, so that's kind of vent-like, I guess. I never looked at a chicken's neck real closely. I thought, do they have, like, gill structures or something, the, the vents? He said, no, 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 the vent, that's where everything passes through. Then, then I knew what he meant. Well, I went over there, and I needed to grab one of those chickens to check around the vent. And I chased a chicken around probably for 25 minutes. But, you know, they have those things called wings, and they can actually fly. Yeah, a chicken, if it's not too heavy-bodied of a bird, <clears throat> they can fly just fine, you know. And, and they run fast, and I'm out there chasing these chickens around, and I almost got one, and it's gotten away from me. Noble, he came over and sat and watched me for quite a while. Finally, I was sort of out of breath, and I sat down next to him. He said, you know, 
You look for chickens that might have lice like this. You don't chase them around during the day. You come out at night when they're up on their roost poles and such, and they're, they're insensible then. You can just pick them up. That's what you ought to do. I said, why didn't you? Oh, never mind. Well, that night I came out there. I had a one-piece zip-up-the-front-mechanics suit that you'd put on, overalls. Because we went in caves all around Bloomington to caving. And what with all the chicken chicken poop there inside the shed, it was easy to maybe lose your footing and slip or slide. So I also had my knee pads on that I wore when I went caving. I had my miner's helmet on, which we used for caving, and it had a carbide light on it. And the carbide light was a little chamber of water that dripped into chunks of carbide, produced the gas that you're going to burn, and then a little mirrored dish. And you'd light that gas and it'd make a flame about two, three inches long. And the mirrored dish would just light up a football field. So I'm out there with the helmet and the flame and the overalls and my knee pads. I've got my, my Aunt Madeline's great big, huge, thick, wide magnifying glass and I pick up a chicken off of a roost pole and it was still kind of just like Noble said insensible but I faced a little challenge the challenge was this the chicken's vent is not immediately apparent you have to kind of like take your fingers and fish around down there until you pull enough of those feathers out of the way to reveal the vent well as I'm trying to pull the feathers back the chicken is starting to make more and more noise. And I realize I'm getting way too close with that little flame coming up my helmet. This had happened once before with dogs. That's another story. Well, finally, I backed off with the flame, got the magnifying glass, looked through it, and here's almost microscopic white little creatures dancing all around that chicken's vent. Ugh. I threw that chicken back down and it got up on its roost pole. I went in the house and took a shower. I come out the next day and I walked over to Noble's and I knocked on his door. Noble, you were right. My chickens have lice. Well, if they got lice, they're not going to lay you any eggs. Well, what do I do about that? How do I get rid of them? Don't know, but I know who knows. Well, who knows? Daddy. Let's go talk to Daddy. I said, Noble, you're 68 years old. How old's your daddy? My daddy, Homer, he'll be 94 come this spring if he makes it. I think he had this trouble once. I, I bet he knows what to do. Well, we hopped in my Ford F-150, held together by rust, and we drove off way over on the way to Nashville till we crossed about where Brummett's Creek Road's at. And we traveled down that little tiny country road and were driving right next to one of those southern Indiana creeks where you can look through three inches of water and it's clear as a bell. And just beneath that water, those three inches down, is the flat, solid, hard bedrock. And he says, turn here. And I said, Noble, there is no road. You're asking me to just turn down this embankment into the creek You'll come out the other side. So down we went, across the creek, come up the other side and saw what you couldn't see from the road, which was a tractor path. We got on that tractor path, and it was in bottom land, and we followed that tractor path as it went along this great huge big field of corn. 
and the tractor path ended at a hill. Noble says, hug the hill, hug the hill. And we turned to the right and we hugged the hill and we left the road and we left the creek and we drove back in time. Because as you followed that tractor path around that hill, it went into a little valley that was, you couldn't see it from the road nor anywhere else unless you'd come back that far. And there was a low squat log cabin with logs probably two feet across, squared off. When you got close to them, you could see they they had turned silver with great age. And you could see all the marks still from well over a hundred years before when they had been squared off with an adze and an axe. Out in front was a hand-dug well with a little structure over the top. And that's where Homer Spriggs still lived. It was the little house where Noble had been born. The same house, cabin, where Homer had been born. Out in front, there's usually lots of cars because he had kids and grandkids and great-grandkids and on and on. And they loved to come and visit. One, because the water from the well was said to be the sweetest up and down that whole valley. But two, when you walked inside the house, there was a big, long, wooden church pew sitting right there on one wall. All those relations would come in and say hello, maybe get a little something to eat, and they'd sit down. Homer would be over there in his rocking chair near his wood stove. He still heated with wood. He still cooked on a wood cook stove, made his own hickory axe handles with a draw knife and a little vice-like thing that he had made his own self. On the wall was an eight-day wind-up Seth clock. You could see the pendulum going back and forth and back and forth, tick, tock, tick, tock. You'd come in and sit down, and maybe it only took one question to get Homer to answer in questions with stories. Stories just poured out of him in memories. You know, today... There's a lot of shows that you might see on television and the movies, and they all deal with, a lot of them deal with time travel if they're fanciful and science fiction oriented. But I realized uh, after some years of knowing these men that I knew out in the country, there is such a thing as a time machine. And it's these folks, men and women, elders, who've lived for a long, long time, and they're filled with stories and memories. Truly a time machine. Uh, a, a real time machine. I walked in with Noble that day, first day I'd ever been there, and I sat down. I at least had picked up, I'd picked up this much about my country neighbors to know. You don't just walk in somewhere, you know, and kind of blurt out, hi, I'm Bob Sander, I've got chickens and i got lice. Anybody help me? Rather, you walk in and you sit down after you've been introduced and kind of nod and maybe say a word or two. Then you kind of wait for conversation to come around to whatever it is you might want to talk about, you know, and kind of work it in. Of course, it's it's not an easy challenge to work lice on the butt of a chicken into your conversation. But there was a point where I, I felt like it wouldn't be inappropriate, and I started to say something, and, and Noble saw that I was going to speak, but he kind of spoke up for me. He said, Daddy, this here's a young fellow what lives across the street from me I've been telling you about. Uh, his chickens have got lice. Now, didn't you and Mama have that problem one time? Uh, yes, we did, honey. We had that problem. And uh, we took care of that all right. 
Homer's voice was always a little, a little thin, you know. He was 94 years old, but uh, his mind was sharp, just sharp as a tack. Well, Daddy, what, what did you and Mama do to get rid of those lice? Well, we would always get, get, get some green, green leaf, green leaf 14, and that seemed to do the trick. And Noble looks at me and gives me a wink. I said, right, thank you, sir. Greenleaf 14. Where, where would I get Greenleaf 14? Farm Bureau Co-op. Well, I didn't want to let on that I had no idea what it was exactly, you know. So armed with my new knowledge, that following week, I drove out to the Farm Bureau Co-op, walked up to the counter, and I said, hey, how you doing? Uh, I'm going to need some Greenleaf Greenleaf 14, maybe a lot of it, I'm not sure how much. And the guy looks at me and he says, well, we used to sell it here, but we don't have it anymore. Oh, no kidding, really? I, I was hoping to get some. Well, you can still get it. You just go to the, there's a pharmacy over there on Walnut Street and they'll sell it to you. Oh, pharmacy, okay, sure, I'll go there. Well, I went to the pharmacy and I went back to the druggist counter and I said, hi, how you doing? I'm going to need some Greenleaf 14, maybe a lot. I'm not sure how it's sold. He said, well, we'd, we've got it, but we don't keep it back here. Okay. Well, where is it? Well, it's up at the checkout counter. Really? The checkout counter? I thought that was kind of an odd place to keep some kind of medicine like this for chickens. But he said, sure, just go ask for it by name. Well, I went up there. There's this big woman up there. She and I never got on. I hadn't been in there a lot, but she just didn't like the looks of me, I think. And uh, so uh, when it was my turn, I walked up there and said, hey, how you doing? I, I, I need some Greenleaf 14, May, uh, maybe a lot of it. I'm not quite sure how much I'm going to need, but a lot. She said, uh-huh. And so she turned, and she, she turned her back to me, and she started to reach up on the wall behind her. I couldn't quite see what she's angling for, but over her shoulder, she stopped and said, is this for you? And I said, well, no, it's not for me. It's for my chickens. And then she just sort of froze and lowered her hands and turned around. And, you know, she had on some of those, like it's hanging on a chain, those glasses that are like half glasses, and you, you can kind of let them hang out in, out in the front of you. Now she picked those glasses up off of her ample bosom and put them up to her nose and kind of slid him up her nose and she looked down at me through those glasses and she said is this a joke no i mean it's not a joke she said really yeah really i, I need some green leaf 14 for my chickens she said uh-huh do your chickens chew tobacco uh well no why green leaf 14 that's very very strong chewing tobacco Right, okay, give me, five or, give me five or six pouches of that, please. And I got my pouches of tobacco and pretty embarrassed, threw them in a sack, paid for them, left that store. Got back to the farmhouse and started opening those things up, and I put that stuff everywhere. Uh, roost poles, nest boxes, around the heated waterer, around the feeder, just kind of almost the whole floor of the place was sprinkled with, was everywhere. And I went out there day after day after day, and I'm looking under these hens' butts, you know, if they're sitting in the nest boxes. Clearly, they want to lay, but they're not laying eggs. After a week, I went back over to Noble. Noble, I'm still not getting any eggs. 
Did you get the green leaf 14 like what daddy said? Of course I did. I put, it's, I put, it's everywhere out there. Well, I don't know. Let's go talk to daddy again. And there I found myself driving through the country and, you know, plunging down the hillside and driving through the creek and going along the cornfield and then hugging the hill. And directly we were seated back again on that, on that big long wooden church pew. And I'm listening to that, that clock tick, tock, tick, tock. I know one time when I'd gone back just to talk to Homer by myself, he, I said to him one day, Homer, does the sound of that clock ticking ever bother you? And he said to me, what, what sound is that, honey? He called everybody honey. What sound is that, honey? Now, in explanation, he went into a back room and he came out with about a foot and a half long, maybe 12 inches tall, foot tall, leather book, hand-bound leather book. And he opened it up and we sat side by side on the pew. And when he opened it up, he showed me this beautiful flowing script of the written account of his own father as a horseback doctor there in Bloomington in the 1800s. And in one, in one column, it would show what the doctor had gone to do, you know, set a broken leg or help birth a calf or whatever it might be. And in another column, it showed what he received for his pay. And almost never was it money. It was like a pound of butter or a gallon of milk or bacon. And on one of them that he showed me, and he, you know, he pointed proudly to it, it said, one clock. So he'd been paid with a clock. And he said to me, well, my daddy brought that home and we keep that clock wound up. And it, it's a point of pride on our family that that clock will never run down. I reckon if you come out here one time and you see that clock has stopped, I suspect that means I have too. On that day, I was there with Noble and there were, of course, relatives sitting around. And we're waiting for the topic to come around. <laughs> of course, once again, we're talking lice. And there was a lull, and I said, I heard one of the one of the kids say, if we don't get rain, those 40 acres, the bottoms aren't going to make any beans. And then I said, yeah, and my chickens still have lice. And Homer, you know, his eyes were kind of sunk back in his head quite a bit with age, and he still had a sparkle in them, wore a little, a little cap on his head, like a welder's cap, no brim, maybe a wisp or two of hair sticking out is all. And his ears, you know, I think people's ears keep growing. They're pretty big. He leans forward and he said, Honey, did you get the green leaf 14 like what I said to do? I did, Homer. I got it and I, man, I sprinkled it everywhere. I sprinkled it on the roost poles and the nest boxes on the floor. He stopped me. Sprinkled it? Sprinkled it? Hell, son, you, you got to chew it up and spit it on everything. Okay, okay. Well, riding home that day in the truck with Noble, I kept thinking to myself, just how badly do I want these eggs, you know? Uh, I'd never chewed tobacco in my life and didn't have any urge to do so. Of course, you know, I'd never been in Little League, which maybe that's when they get those kids started on it. Who knows? 
But I kept thinking about how much I'd been through already and how much I'd like to get those eggs. So, uh, well, out I go that night, all suited up, you know, in my uniform and my helmet and the, the carbide lamp and all. And I'm about ready to pick up a chicken and kind of maybe blacken its bottom with chewed up tobacco, spit on the chicken and spit on the poles and spit on the... You know, I'm getting ready to do this. When a, a sentence, just some words that Noble had told me, apropos of nothing one day, as we just sat talking, one day he had looked over at me. I don't even think we're talking chickens, but he looked over at me and he said, Bob, chickens have no sphincter control. Well, I thought that was kind of an odd sentence, but now that, that sentence played back through my mind as I was holding my face right up next to this chicken sphincter. And uh, I'd, I'd observed that what he had said that day held true. So I was being pretty careful, but I'm, I'm spitting this tobacco on the chickens, on the roost boxes, in the nest, you know, everything. All of the whole place was brown. The walls, everything was browned. Three days later, I walked out there and lifted up the tail feathers on a chicken's rear end. Buddy, there was the biggest brown country egg you ever saw, and two or three more in the other boxes. And I brought them in the house, and I went to crack open the first egg, and it wouldn't crack because it was so much thicker, so much stronger than any egg that I'd gotten from the store. I wasn't used to it. And I finally cracked it open, and I put it in a skillet, and that deep, deep orange egg yolk looked up at me, just as if to say, I dare you, try it, just try to break this. And I ate that egg, it was wonderful, wonderful. And it was the first of, as it turns out, it was the first of thousands of other eggs because I ended up, I ended up keeping chickens for probably 10 more years, well after I got out of school, you know, Every once in a while, a hen would get loose or, you know, she's doing free range and she'd lay a clutch of eggs somewhere out where I didn't know they were and she'd hatch out. One day she'd reappear and she'd have hatched out maybe 10 or 15 baby chicks. And it was just the most endearing thing to watch as the mama hen would scritch and scratch with her feet and back up and all the little chicks would rush in to see what had she dug up for them now. And I, I kept those chicks. It was... I, I just kept them for the longest time. I liked having them. I liked watching them. Even one year, I can remember this, um, a hen showed up with a clutch of eggs. I was long gone out of Bloomington by that time, living up around the Indianapolis area. And one egg had not hatched, and the chick uh, was still in the egg, you could tell, was trying to get out. But the mama had left the nest with all the rest of the chicks, kind of abandoned it, I guess. And I took that egg in the house and I put it in an incubator and it hatched out. And as it turns out, chickens have this imprinting phenomena that they and other animals have. And the first thing they see, that's, you know, that's imprinted, that's mama. And I was the first thing that chick saw. And it was coal black. And whenever it would see me, it would follow me around outside. Later, when it was able, it would fly up on my shoulder and I'd walk around with it on my shoulder. So I kept chickens for a long time after that day. And uh, well then, you know, um, time went by and we were gone from the farmhouse. 
But I would still come back through that area if I was working down in southern Indiana or going back down to Bloomington for some reason. And for a couple of years, I still saw lights on in that house and somebody was taking care of the grass, you know. But there came a year when I had to go by there and the grass was real, real long and there were no lights. And not too long after that, I saw that there were some window panes broken and such. One year, a big windstorm came and pulled down that big, that big fir tree in the front yard and it smashed that chicken coop flat to the ground. So just like that, it was gone. And it took so many years before the house was fully on the road to ruin, but I could see that it was coming. You could see the roof kind of falling in at some point. And finally it was bought up uh, and made into a subdivision, if you can believe that. The land was all terraformed in a way that you would never have known. There'd been a horse pasture and a falls and a barn and a house and it was all vanished, you know, only kind of left in memory. As far as Homer and, and the Noble goes, one time when I went back down there and stopped in for a visit, I said, Noble, how you doing? I'm good, I'm good. Uh, what's up with Homer? Is he still kicking? Yeah, he's still alive. He'll be 98 if he makes it come spring. I said, 98? Gosh, it's been that long. Yep. Well, um, I said, so you're both getting along, all right? Yeah. Oh, well, heck yeah. Actually, we got a bet. You do? Well, what, what's your bet? The bet is to see who will outdie the other one. Really? Huh. That's a little, it, that's kind of like it's a little morbid, isn't it? Oh, heck no. I got good money riding on this. Well, as it turns out, not so long after that, there in his easy chair, uh, Noble took a heart attack and the paper folded over him and there he was. You know, he'd left this world and it wasn't but uh, about three weeks later that Homer followed him. Now, as far as going out there to Homer's place, you know, uh, I didn't know had anybody continued on out there once he had passed. And every once in a while I'd work in the Nashville area or Bloomington area and if I was transporting, well, not transporting, but, you know, going from one city to the other, I'd go down Brummage Creek Road. And once I went down there and across the creek, I went up onto the tractor path. I went over to the hill and hugged the hill and drove around to see there was nobody in the parking area. And I got out, it was fall, and I walked up to the house and looked in the front door. And the place was just empty completely empty and I, I wandered back to uh, an outbuilding and there were old windows on the side on one side of it and they were kind of almost smoky with dust and grit and I, I kind of took my hand and rubbed it a little bit put my eye up there and looked in the first thing I saw was that that big long wooden church pew it had things stacked on it including that clock and that clock was stopped and then it kind of hit me, and I thought, you know, there's nothing in this world that lasts. Finally, you know, everything, every material thing, every person, anything we hold dear, finally goes beyond our good grasp. 
except maybe for one thing, and that would be uh, the stories that we know of all those people and places and things. And if we pass that story along, and if it's a good enough story and someone else likes it, they can pass it along, and it doesn't have to end ever. And so that's why I like telling this story. It's a great way to come back to those memories and those times, and it's almost like they're here again. And I told this story, and I have told this story for many decades now. And almost always when I tell this story, it's usually for an older group of adults. And usually when the story ends, there's a knot of people waiting to talk to me afterwards. And they'll come up and say, oh, I remember I grew up on a farm and, oh, we had a rooster. That thing would come after me, you know, and whenever it would, uh, my daddy would go out and chase it with a baseball bat. And sometimes, you know, if, if one of those roosters did that, that'd be what would, that would be in our pot that night. That's what we'd eat. And they'd say the like of that. You know, I remember doing laundry with my mother outdoors and hanging up the clothes on a line and the smell of fresh sheets blowing in the wind as they dry. One time I was near Bloomington, not in Bloomington, but nearby. And here's this, you know, group of mostly women at this particular event. I think it was like a homemaker's home ec event. And this one woman was kind of hanging back. I could tell she wanted to talk to me. And when everybody else was gone, she came up. She didn't look maybe even as old as I was, you know. I was probably in my 50s then. And she came up and she said, I really like that story you told about Homer and, and Noble and that farmhouse and all. I said, yeah, well, thank you. She said, yeah, I could just picture it crisp as anything. Well, thank you so much. She said, yeah, Noble, he was my daddy. I said, is that right? Oh, absolutely. She said, you know, you pegged them. You got them. That was my daddy and that, that was Homer too, you know. And my granddaddy, and she said, uh, I remember I was little when you boys were living down the road in that farmhouse. And sometimes if I'd been a handful, uh, Noble would take me aside and say, little girl, you better straighten up and fly right, or I'll take you down the road and feed you to the hippies. So I laughed about that, and she did too. And then she said to me, you know what? Nobody has lived in Homer's old cabin out there for a couple decades, but there's a great-grandson that's come along, and he's going to live there, and he's fixing the place up. And I want to ask you something. I want to ask you, would you come out to that old house this summer for the first-ever Spriggs family reunion and tell that story about Homer and, and Noble? And I, I, I was stunned. You know, I just said, well, of course, I'd be honored. And the time came, and I got to take my wife with me. We went out there, and there was probably a 100 people or more. And they are looking through the old cabin, you know. He'd done some major updating, but still, when you walked in, there's the church pew back in the living room. There's the clock on the wall, wound up and ticking again. And I got to get up on a little stage they had, they had made and had my little sound system, and I got to tell all those people that story about those years I'd spent uh, knowing those, those two older men and how much it meant to me that they'd, they'd let me tell that story and come and be with them on that day. Well, so 
that's kind of the end of that story for now. I hope you guys like that story. I don't know that this is my signature story, but maybe it's close to one. So um, see you again later at another story. Take care.